All right. Well, we are rolling along in the book of Daniel to the 10th chapter tonight. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10, for a while, I know this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, for a while I actually had delusions that we were going to finish the whole chapter tonight. That's not going to (laughs) happen. But we are going to get some great ground covered and it's going to seem revolutionary alongside of the one verse coverage that we've had for a few of our last times. So we've just concluded what is arguably the most stunning prophecy in the Bible with Daniel's 70 weeks. And in that vision, we saw such incredible detail, the stunning detail. And I'd encourage you to go back. And listen to that again. Refresh yourself on that text because there are so many beautiful prophecies in Scripture. And we've seen so many of them fulfilled already with our Savior's first advent. But to see a prophecy that talks about both the first and the second advent, and there are others of those, Isaiah 52 and 53 specifically, as well as others, but to see a timetable established with it, I continue to marvel at that. You know, God doesn't need to give us prophecy. God is God and we are not. And when he tells us to do something, that means we're supposed to do it. And that should be good enough for us. And I know it is good enough for us. But that he would be so kind as to also give us this window into that which would occur. Letting us see from the Old Testament perspective what he was going to bring about through his son and then now to do so in Daniel and to also give us a timeline that we can go back and we can chart not generally centuries or even decades or even years but down to days and see what he has done and to to recognize the assurance it gives us. I mean, That's fantastic. And so I hope you'll continue to press in and to learn more about these details. And I I do believe that as you refresh yourself on those details, you yourself will be refreshed by the focus on prophecy and on Christ and to affirm the timing of his first advent and in succinct detail describe the conditions of his second coming. And we'll see yet more of that as we move through the chapters of Daniel. So, with this, we move on to the final vision of the book of Daniel. That's right. This starts the end. There is one more vision in the book of Daniel. It takes up three chapters. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 are a single vision. So we are rolling in to that vision tonight. Our title this evening as we begin this endeavor is Confounding Considerations. And indeed, as we look at our text in chapter 10, these are confounding considerations. The focus of each of our points tonight is on time, which connects directly to our theme. And the theme that is in your outline there in your prayer guide is three astounding times that correlate to your life. And these are indeed times that do correlate to you and that do give you direct understanding and insight and application to how you are to live your life. 
These are, again, three astounding times that correlate to your life. And our first point I've titled, A Fast Time. A Fast Time. And it begins in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10 and verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth. Nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. The time reference of our points and theme, again, is immediately evident in the first phrase of verse 1. And this we've discussed from our timeline. That is, that it is the third year of King Cyrus. And from your timelines, looking at chapters 10 to 12, you see that the third year of King Cyrus was 536 B.C. So this is the point in time that we're brought to in this whole discussion. And we'll come back to a few more points. And if you don't have one of these, there's still some out in the foyer. If you're at home and you don't have one of these because you can't get to the foyer, you can email me and I'd be happy to send one to you. And we'll be talking about that because it continues to have impact on us as we move through these next three chapters. So it is here that the message is given to Daniel. In Hebrews, this is our key word that we've seen throughout each vision in Daniel. And it is the word dabar in Hebrew. And it's a very common word in Hebrew. It means matter or word. And it's what we see here translated in the New American Standard as the message. The message. And you note that you have a footnote, number one, if you have a New American Standard, and it has side column or center column references. And it says in the margin, word. So literally the word. And this is, this is something we've seen. Every prophecy of Daniel and every vision of Daniel uses this same word to identify the prophecy. So when we see it, our Grammatical, historical, hermeneutics, antennas, and I know you all have those, if not you want a set, are perked so that we understand from a biblical interpretation point of view, it's over and over and over again. This is Daniel's word. It is the word, word, and it is what Daniel uses to convey to us, this is a new and distinct vision that I'm bringing to you. And it is a key thematic marker in Daniel because of that. This vision will actually be primarily revealed in chapter 11 and go through chapter 12. So the main body of the vision is not for a chapter coming. But the preparatory elements are so critical. Daniel's Babylonian name is given as he is still referred to by this even though he's under the new media Persian Empire. So he's still referred to as Belteshazzar. And that doesn't surprise us. 
there they are still speaking Aramaic. Daniel has now switched back from the Aramaic of chapters 2 through 7 back to Hebrew because he's now talking about the children of Israel and what is going to happen to them in the future. But yet he is still being referred to in this fashion and reminds us of that in the beginning of verse 1. And then we're given two pieces of information about the pending vision. First, it is true. Literally, in the Hebrew, the matter or word is truth. In case anyone had anyone wanted to raise any doubts about the authenticity of the divine word, it is confirmed internally right here. This is such an important point. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, which we're going to be blessed some months down the road. Bob Hurley in one of our Sunday school classes is going to be taking us into 1 Peter and then 2 Peter. So I'm not turning anything loose too early because he'll be a few months before he gets there. But 2 Peter chapter 1 says this. And it is so important. In fact, take your Bibles and turn there with me, would you? Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1 because when we think about the Bible saying that something in the Bible is true, it's not just a, a repetitive or a redundant statement. And this is why. 2 Peter chapter 1 beginning at verse 16. 2 Peter 1 and 16. Our text that we'll talk about is 19 through 21, but I want to set the context. Verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay, we'll stop right there. He is telling us what we're telling you about Christ is not some fancy fable. This is not some made-up tale to draw you in. We saw it. And we're reporting to you what we saw. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. They heard God the Father speak from heaven about Jesus his son. When did that happen? The Mount of Transfiguration, exactly. And this is where we're specifically referred to here. Where else does it happen? Baptism, exactly. We see the Father speaking about to the Son on repeated events. So very important for us to understand that this is what they're testifying to. Verse 18, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. That confirming the transfiguration as this particular reference. Verse 19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Bible is telling us 
something about itself, something about every book, every word, every letter, every accent, every aspect of this book we call the Bible. And he is saying that it is not for men, that it is from God. The function of it is that we have a prophecy that is made more sure. It is consistent beginning to end. The prophecies are brought forward and fulfilled. And we are affirmed in our understanding of this truth. So back to Daniel. When he tells us that the word is truth. That if it is not. It's the exact same thing as those false religions who acknowledge that Jesus was a prophet. Islam, most of the other religions. Jesus is a good person. The Jehovah Witnesses. Jesus is another son of God, the Mormons. He cannot be. He cannot be any of those things if this book is true. Because he says... I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So he is either God and the only Savior in salvation, or he is a fraud. And so also now what we're seeing here is this word is either fully authoritative and fully from God and fully true, or it is completely to be thrown away. This is an incredible statement that the word is truth. And we who believe it and trust it and who love it, we often read something like this and go, oh yeah, it's truth. No, 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 no. <laughs> Don't miss this. This is an important point when you're talking about other people about scripture. I was somewhere not long ago and I heard someone say, um, but there's so many different interpretations. There's so many different versions. And this version says that, and that version says this. And I just don't know that we have any confidence that, that this is the word of God at all. Because there's so many different ways it's pro proclaimed. No, 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 no. Recognize the reality of what happens in translation. When you come from Hebrew to English, when you come from uh, Greek to Spanish or English or any other source language to a target language... It doesn't work perfectly. Do any of you speak another language? Oh, you're much like me. You know what you call a person that's trilingual or that has three languages, trilingual, speaks two languages, bilingual, and one that speaks one language is American. So um, I learned that the first time when I was in Britain. And uh, so be it. The, 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 if you recognize and speak another language, you understand how difficult it is. Because words can be used differently. Take our English words. Look how many different meanings you can come up with based on a word. So don't let that be a deterrent. And, and people who would say that it is, assure them, no, this is what the scripture says. The word is truth. God's word is fully true. And we can stand on it and not be concerned about those type of issues. So first it is true. The second thing it tells us about us, it is a message of great conflict or warfare. That word conflict also translated well as warfare. Unfortunately here, the King James Version and the New King James Version miss the mark by using the word long and translating the word for conflict as basically service. 
And talking about a long service or a long time. Conflict, warfare, men who are brought into service. There's a connection there, but it's a poor understanding. And it misses the context of the overall discussion. And it doesn't fit that very well, as the other versions are much better. But the question arises as to why this is here. And is it an important question to ask? Why does it matter that this is, whatever this matter is, whatever this word is, that it is an issue of great conflict? Well, let's recount what's going on. Your timelines are are helpful for this as well. But Daniel has been in Babylon, now media Persia, for 69 years. You can count them. He was taken captive in 605 B.C., Boom, right here. And we are now in 536 BC. 69 years Daniel's been in Babylon. Giving the likelihood that he was at the age of 12 to 13 years when he was taken captive. The beginning of manhood in that reckoning and in that day. That makes Daniel now around 81 to 82 years old. Furthermore, the vision of chapter 9 that we just finished was three years earlier than this, 539 B.C. Following that vision, and remember what began chapter 9? Daniel's prayer. Daniel's prayer is spurred by his recognition that is uh, Jeremiah's 70-year captivity from Jeremiah 25.10 is coming to an end. So he starts praying. Father, I realize this time is coming. I realize I'm still a sinner. I realize my people are still sinners. We have not given ourselves fully to you. And this is what his incredible prayer is all about. Recognition of that 70-year conclusion. So, in chapter 9, in 539 BC, he prays. And in light of that prayer and in light of God's timetable, one year later in 538 BC, his prayer is heard and answered as Cyrus issues the decree for the exiles to return to Jerusalem. And in that, the 70-year captivity, which began in 609, is now concluded in 539. And that prophecy from Isaiah 44 and 45 about Cyrus's decree and the conclusion of the 70 years from Jeremiah 25.10 are all coming to a point and all coming to conclusion. And all of these details, again, on your timeline. Let's bounce back to one other biblical book to understand a few more pieces of that. Turn back with me to the book of Ezra. Back past the Psalms, back past Job, and in front of Second Chronicles, you'll find the book of Ezra. Ezra is where these decrees occur and it's where our timing is further discussed. And I want to look at those briefly just to carry ourselves along. Again, all of the timelines are on our table, but let's look at some of the text. So 539, Daniel prays. He gets the vision of chapter 9, which is the massive 70-week vision, speaking about the coming of Messiah, the cutting off of Messiah, and then the time gap, which is indicated in the grammar, 
to what will finally be the last week, the week of the Antichrist, and all of those details. Look at Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at, the, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Here's the decree that God stirred Cyrus to write, having prophesied about it, 150 years prior in Isaiah 44 and 45, which is completion of Jeremiah's 70-year prophecy of punishment. Tanner notes that by September of that year, the Jews had rebuilt the altar in Jerusalem. Turn ahead to Ezra chapter 3 and verse 1. This is where he gets that. Ezra 3 and 1. Now when the seventh month came, there's where the time stamp is. So when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings in it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundations for they were terrified because of the people of the lands and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They celebrated the feast of booths as it is written and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance as each day required. They go back to the land in the first of the Jewish calendar, Nisan, April, May, and seven months later in September, the altar is built and they're making offerings on the altar. By late spring of 537, the work had begun on the foundation of the temple. Jump down to verse 7 of chapter 3. Then they gave money and masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God, okay, little math, 539 BC, decree is issued, and they leave, 538, the decree is issued, they leave, we are in 536, 537, based on not full calendar cycles. So, the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers and priests and Levites, and all who came from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. 
And so they begin to oversee the house of the Lord and they lay its foundation. Verse 10 of chapter 3. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets of the Levites, the sons of Asaph, the symbols to praise the Lord according to the direction of King David of Israel. And they sing. So the temple foundation has been laid. However... Ezra chapter 4 and verse 1. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's household and said to them, let us build with you for we are like you, for we like you seek your God and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria who brought us up here. Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord our God Israel as King Cyrus, king of Persia has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. They hired counselors, they sent Word back to the king in Media Persia, and they shut down the work of the Lord. So now, although the altar has been built, sacrifices have been made, the foundation has been laid, the work has stopped. And Daniel obviously would be fully aware of that situation. We see in Ezra that there's a back and forth dialogue between the exiles and those who have returned. So Daniel realizes in chapter 9 that the 70 year captivity of Jerusalem is ending and he prays to that end. God answers the prayer and he must have been ecstatic. But then right before the Passover, because that's where they are now, the Passover and the first Passover that would be celebrated again in Jerusalem in the newly begun temple, the work is stopped. And we'll see more about this in just a minute. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 10. And as we go back to Daniel chapter 10, at the end of the verse, Daniel chapter 10 and verse 1, we see the, the message that is the matter or the word. In Daniel chapter 10 and verse 1, three times that word matter, Hebrew debar, is used in one verse. And then it says he had an understanding of the vision. So first, he understood the message or the word, or the matter. And then, he has an understanding of the vision. What's going on there? Remember what happened in chapter 8? He didn't understand. He didn't comprehend what was going on. He knew the message, he knew enough to convey the vision, but he didn't know what it meant. Here he's given understanding, but he doesn't have a complete understanding. He has and understanding. The New American Standard nails the translation of this very unique Hebrew phrase. And when we get to chapter 12 and verse 8, we're going to see that he didn't understand everything. So this is an illusion and a connectivity telling us that this is all one vision. 
So what it's telling us here is he does not have full insight, but simply an understanding of the vision. Then in verse 2, we see Daniel's condition. Mourning for three weeks. Just like our reference to the word mourning, it's as if there was tremendous grieving over the death or the loss of a loved one. Daniel is burdened massively at this point. But the question becomes, what was Daniel mourning? What's the big burden here? Well, it's what we just saw in verse 1. It's the great conflict of verse 1. And that conflict is the stopping of the construction of the temple. This has moved forward and all of a sudden, ah, put the brakes on. Car stopped in front of me. We're going to, you know, have a rear end here. Everything shuts down. And Daniel is understanding now the conclusion of the matter of the 70 week prophecy. There was going to be judgment that was going to go on. And that judgment was already being allowed to occur. Further, the recognition of, of, again, Israel's continued punishment directly ties his understanding of the conclusion of the 70 weeks, the continuation of unfaithfulness by Israel through that time, and thus God now giving the full punishment to the nation of Israel of 490 years for all of the 490 years of Sabbath rests of the land, seven-year Sabbath rests of the land that they did not observe. Verse 3 tells us that he, that he ate no food or drank any wine. And here is the crux of our first point. A fast time. For this was for Daniel a time of fasting. The original Hebrew is literally translated, I did not eat grain of the treasuries and flesh and wine did not go towards my mouth. <clears throat> Excuse me. In all of our modern versions, the King James Version is the closest to this original, where it says, I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth. So this is, he's telling us this is indeed a fast. He completely had moved away from these things which were his normal sustenance. The fact that they were in the New American Standard, tasty food is way better translated as we see in the King James Version, pleasant bread or the grain of the treasuries. He was eating from the treasuries because he's in the king's court. So this isn't just fancy food. It's not Daniel's living high on the hog. This is what he's provided being in this place. And now he has said no to that. This was a true fast that Daniel was on and one that lasted three weeks. By the way, notice also in verse three that he did not use any ointment during the entire three weeks that were completed. There are several facets of this ointment. Remember King David when he had the uh, affair with Bathsheba and he had Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed and Nathan the prophet comes and tells him that he is the one who is the offender and that because of this 
their son is going to die and David is in the temple praying and pleading to God that the child might not be taken and God does take the child and David realizes it because he hears the servants murmuring and whispering because they're afraid if he's done this before the child died and he's taken no food and he is fasting and separating himself that he may take his life once he finds out the child is gone. And yet what does he do? He asked them, has the child died? And they said, yes. And he arises and he washes himself and he anoints himself with oils. This is what you did after you bathed in that area. You put oils on yourselves. And especially if you are living in Babylon. Anybody been down in Death Valley about July You know that little thermometer along I-15? You know that bounces up there to about 125? It's not the time you want to go take a walk. That's Babylon. That's the desert that is Iraq and Iran. If you're there, and by the way, most of the people and even Daniel are not living in these fancy air conditioning quarters staying out of the sun. If you want to keep your skin from absolutely withering off your body, you have to put some oil on. So Daniel's not doing any of that. Further confirming the lament and the mourning that's going on in his life. This was a troubling situation to be sure. Although the physical condition of the temple construction had halted, Tanner notes that the spiritual battle behind this condition was very evident to Daniel. The the spiritual war that we'll see him refer to in Daniel 10.13, where the angel Gabriel is resisted by the prince of Persia from coming to him, and we'll get to the description of all of that. It shows that what is behind this is satanic wickedness, and Daniel understands it. But also, as one commentator notes, Daniel didn't sit dejected and helpless, but he did the most crucial thing that he could do. He resorted to fasting and praying. This was completely beyond his control. But whose control was it completely within? The God to whom he came to fast and to pray and to mourn and to pour out his lament. Beloved, this applies specifically to us today. Fasting is repeatedly mentioned in the New Testament and that it's something that believers today ought to be doing. The cessation of eating and the resulting desire for food that our body naturally generates through that period is a constant reminder to pray. I decide that on this day, I'm not going to eat breakfast, lunch, or dinner, or I'm not going to eat until sundown. And so as breakfast time comes and I'm used to a little oatmeal and I don't take it, I may roll through that okay, but shortly thereafter, it's going to be growling a little. I should be praying. And I'm going to pray through that. We're going to move on. And then lunch is going to come and I'm really going to get the hangries about lunch. Ah, feed me. It's a reminder, no, I need to be praying. I need to be pleading to God. So fasting is an important part of a believer's life. 
Pardon? Okay. As you have things in your life or that of your family or friends or church or society that burden you, do something about it. Yes, tell others. Yes, include others in your prayer. But pray. Fast. Consider how you may bring yourself before the Lord and lay yourself before him. This is so important for us to fast and pray. Two things we need to bear in mind here that need mentioned. Be wise with your health. Don't do a 40-day secession from food and water just because Jesus and Moses did it. They were divinely sustained by God. Not a good idea. So consider carefully your health. But in general, the vast majority of us have no problem being able to avoid a meal or two. Obviously, if you are a diabetic or you have other conditions, be wise with this. But you too, even in those conditions, can fast. Rightly understood and and seek a physician if you have those kind of challenges. But consider it. Number two, when you fast, it's always a private matter between you and God. Don't go announce your fast as if this kind, some kind of spiritual merit badge. Hey, look at me. I'm fasting. No, that's not at all what the Bible describes. In fact, it gives us quite the contrary in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, we, we read the following in Matthew 6 and 16. When you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. This is a really important matter for believers in the church because it doesn't, he makes the very same statement, not just about fasting, But back up at the beginning of chapter 6, he says the same thing with regards to giving. And he says the same thing with regards to praying. We don't pray to be noticed by men. And many people in the church, especially newer believers, they have this thing that uh, as soon as I've done something spiritual, I want to run up and tell somebody, you know, and it's not so much that they want that attaboy, but they kind of do. They're encouraged that they've done something that, that is what they're supposed to. Beloved, this is not how we're to do it. Hey, you know, I, I gave a little extra money to that missionary and I'm, you know, I'm glad they're going to use it for this thing. Good for you. Keep that t- between you and the Lord. Hey, you know, I, I went out and, I, and I, I prayed for an hour, you know, on the... the uh, the day that we celebrate the, the issue of the sanctity of human life in January on that third Sunday. I prayed for a whole hour that day. Good for you. Keep that between you and the Lord. Matthew 6 and 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have your reward with your Father who is in heaven. He tells us further under each of these conditions, giving and prayer and fasting, that if we do it to be noticed by men, that we have our reward in full. You get that attaboy from your brother or sister, that's the end of it. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to get an attaboy, I really would prefer it be from God than from my brother or sister. So these are the things that we're to do in the quietness of our own heart. 
Well, a fast time is followed by our second point, a fascinating time. A fascinating time. Look at verse 4 of Daniel chapter 10 with me. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. While the men who were with me did not see the vision, nevertheless, a great dread fell on them and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words. And as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. A fascinating time. The first question that arises from the text is who is the man in linen? Because of verses 10 to 19, particularly verse 16 of chapter 10, where it talks about one resembling a human being touching his lips in the context of the other verses, many would say, many conservative commentators believe that this is an angelic reference. And they further surmise that this is the archangel Michael that is being referenced here. The greatest of all of the angels. Let's dive in and see for ourselves what the text tells us about who this is. And in verse four, we find Daniel's three-week fast ending on the 24th of the first month. When is that? The first month is the month of Nisan in the Hebrew calendar. It is the month of the Passover. Like the, the month Nisan, this is like the car, only it wasn't named after the car. <laughs> yeah, you know, Pastoral humor never works. Never works. So the, this month is March or April in our calendar. And it is the feast of Passover. God told the children of Israel in Exodus 12 that this was to be the first month of their year because of the Passover. Passover was to be on the 14th of Nisan. We talked about a few weeks back about the specificity of the 70-week prophecy being shown as Christ's announcement as Messiah on the 10th of Nisan, 33 AD, specifically fulfilling to the day the announcement that came forth from King Artaxerxes in Nehemiah in 444 BC. And so the 10th of Nisan is the day that the, that the lambs were to be brought into the home in Exodus, in the Passover. It is the day Christ came in and was announced. Exodus 14 was the day that the Passover lambs were to be sacrificed. 
between the two evenings. Very, 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 very important phrase in the Hebrew text. The Hebrew day is broken down in the end of the day into two evenings. The time where the sun begins to go down and the time when it becomes dark. And they call this between the two evenings. And in that time frame, the Passover lamb was to be slain, was to be roasted, and the blood from the lamb was to, lamb was to be put upon the doorposts and the lintel. And they were to eat the roasted lamb, standing with their loins girded with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. And this was in memory of what God had done as the angel of the Lord, as God himself passed over those Israelites and slaughtered all of the firstborn of Egypt, man and animal. After the 14th of Nisan, God instituted a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So from 14 Nisan to 21 Nisan is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What's Daniel doing when he stops the fast on the 24th of Nisan? It began 21 days earlier on the 4th of Nisan. And now on the 24th, it is concluding. Or yeah, 24th, because you've got that extra day when you're doing the math on days and kind of like my calendar skills, it's not great, but you can figure that all out. And we can have a talk afterwards if you have questions. But the point is he's fasting through the entire Passover, through the time when you're supposed to be celebrating that feast. Well, recognize, of course, the Passover is no longer occurring because the temple is not built. Daniel is in Babylon, now Media Persia. But nonetheless, this is the period that's being discussed. So he is observing a time of fasting rather than feasting at this commanded time. And at the end of verse 4, Daniel is by the Tigris River. So Daniel is not now in Babylon because he has left the city and he is by the river. And note also, he is not with the exiles that have returned to Jerusalem. He is still out in the region of the Tigris River. Tigris and the Euphrates run approximately uh, northwest to southeast down through to the Persian Gulf. So these two rivers that are running in this direction, Daniel is now by one of those. Doubtlessly in his 80s, he's way too frail for the several hundred mile journey by foot back to Jerusalem. And most of us, not in our 80s, are too frail for a several hundred mile walk through the desert back to Jerusalem. And then in verse 5, Daniel encounters a certain man in his vision, one dressed in linen. And the question is, who is this man? And for the answer and all of the great details, you need to come back next week. Because we just got too much to get into to even start this. But already, we see the correlation of these astounding events to our lives. And the importance that these confounding considerations, as they come home to us, when difficulties come into our lives, like they come into Daniel's, that we pray. That the first thing we do is pray. You know, I'll never forget the story that I heard from Karen's dad about being a young boy in a Model T 
with his dad, Franklin Carr, one of the first photographers in Boise, coming down from their cabin off Schaefer Butte in the Model T, and they're going around one of the crazy corners on that road in that Model T, tires about the same size as my bicycle, which by the way, it's bad when your bicycle tire blows. And the outside front tire on the Model T blows. And Jim said, I will never forget. The first thing my dad did is start audibly calling out to God for help. Because they've got a truckload of kids in the back of the Model T. No hope of stopping on that downhill grade coming around that corner. And he said, the car came to an almost immediate halt. Franklin turned immediately to prayer. How about you? How about me? As times come into our lives where we're struggling, beloved, we need to immediately get on our knees. We need to consider whether it's time for us to prepare our hearts, our bodies, and our minds for a fast and plead to the Lord our God as Daniel did. So a perfectly correlated event to each and every one of our lives. And may God grant us strength and resolve in all the considerations and difficulties of our lives to respond as Daniel responded. Father, thank you for the picture of how we're to live. Thank you for the goodness that you pour into our lives. Thank you for the encouragement from your word. Father, it would be enough for you to tell us that we need to pray but to show us why we do, to show us how we are to pray, to give us examples of a man of prayer, and to give us incredible facets of prophecy so that our hearts would be encouraged and further drawn in to recognize all of the promises of your word, all of the blessings that you shower upon us every day, which are from you alone, so that we might better give you glory, that we might better grow in holiness and that we might be better prepared for your use. And we give you thanks and praise because you alone are worthy. And we ask it in the only name under heaven and upon earth by which men can be saved. The name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.